0: Stephen Orr is the former gardening editor of Martha Stewart Living and is currently the executive editor at Condé Nast Traveler, but when he's not up in airplanes or working in the tallest skyscraper in North America, One World Trade Center, he is down on the ground gardening in the Catskills and gardening with hundreds of herbs. Stephen's latest book is The New American Herbal. The book features over 100 genera on 384 pages revealing the category of plant annual perennial shrub or tree and things like fragrance culinary uses ornamental qualities even deer resistance and safety will they heal you or kill you herbs have been used for centuries and now all of this is brought up to date in this fantastic new book and i'm i'm very pleased to welcome stephen or to kendra's real dirt
1: hi ken how are you so glad to be here
0: i'm glad to be speaking with you and This book is overwhelming. (laughs) Oh,
1: thank you. It was a little overwhelming to to make the book, um, for sure.
0: Well, it's a a labor of love. I can tell that. And I can stress the word labor. Uh, And you, you took all of the photographs yourself. How did well, you...
1: Aren't, aren't you? Are, are, I think you and I are one of some of the few authors who take our own photos as well, right? And
0: people think that's weird. It is weird, know.
1: but I, I kind of have to do it. I mean, I would love. to – I have so many great photographer friends who would do a better job, but I, I can't employ them and get the same photographs, you know, on the fly like I do for right. this sort of thing because you find
0: yourself in the right place at the right time and i literally was pulling
1: over the pulling the car over to take photographs of herbs if i saw them say in canada or in in, you know like a a picture of saint john's wort is in montreal and just in a vacant lot and a picture (laughs) of fennel might be you know on the side of the road in northern california Mm -hmm. so Yeah, so just the way it happened.
0: Well, I'm interested in how you found the plants because, as I said, there's a hundred genera that you focused on, but there's many, many, many more photographs uh, that illustrate some of the topics that you talk about, including toxicity uh, and fragrance and things like that. Uh, Besides, you've told me a few places that you found the plants. Did you also go to public gardens and to nurseries?
1: Yes, the, the public gardens especially. Well, I grew a lot of the plants myself up, up at my um, weekend house in the Catskills, and I grew uh, you know hundreds of kinds of herbs there because that's just what I like. That's kind of the genesis of the book is using the herbs up there. But then there were other herbs that I didn't have that I needed to find, and so it became like a treasure hunt to locate as many as possible. And... Um, and uh, you know, be able to catalog those visually. And so w- what I did was I found really great um, public gardens. And some of them some of my favorites would be um well locally here in New York, we have um the New York Botanical Garden has an herb garden, and then it has herbs and useful plants kind of sprinkled throughout the property. And then Brooklyn Botanic Garden has a garden that focuses on edible and useful plants. and um Wave Hill has a a small herb garden, but it's really great stuff. And then further or f- further afield I found, I went to the National Herb Collection in Washington, D.C., which is great. It had a really good range of things I didn't find elsewhere. Um, I also went to the Medicinal Herb Garden at the University of Washington in Seattle, and that had a very good um, collection that the students use. It was growing, and I found a lot of unusual things and then one of my favorites even though it's i call it the new American Herbal, so i guess it kind of fits because it's north america is i did i did kind of trips out of um the u.s and went to montreal and i their garden of useful plants at the botanic garden was really fantastic and i highly recommend that um for a visit in mid-summer it was like a just immensely large, um, almost plant museum, and they had it organized by type, and that's where I found a lot of great things too. And everything was gorgeous looking.
0: Well, that's um, still North America. My guest today is Stephen Orr, author of *The New American Herbal*. Stephen, you have the word "new" in the title, so what's new about this book?
1: Well, you guys you know, when I I've loved herbs herbs and herb books for since i started being a gardener um... and i always collect those little herb books that you find that were written by often i call them herb ladies i don't mean that pejoratively but they're they're often w- women writers of the twenties and thirties and forties and fifties and even sixties seventies and you any, any any times or anytime herbs had a resurgence you'd have these books come out and and i love those books, and I've always collected them when I find them. And they're always really charming and have great information. They're also very european focused, I find. And so I wanted to do a book that took advantage of um, as Americans, all the groups of people who have come here over the past decades who have brought um, their food. Um, knowledge with them and often their plants so we have people you know obviously from asia bringing plants that you know we we we, you know 20 years ago you didn't really have thai basil around that much you didn't have lemongrass you didn't have um all sorts of things well even cilantro
0: Um,
1: yeah even cilantro and and it's funny to read some of the i have it in the book when you read about cilantro and coriander some of the old books are so um have so much hatred of cilantro (laughs) and and some of the um Authors, you know, tell stories about how horrified that one person I like, I forget what her name is, but she she talked about how, and I put the quote in there. she talked about how one of her house guests came to her, her home for the weekend and thought she was being very helpful and went out to collect parsley and collected um, the odious uh, um, cilantro and was putting it in the salads and just wrecked almost wrecked the whole weekend for everybody. <laughs> so you know um they they used to not like those kind of flavors, I guess. and uh, and in in. So and also just in in my neighborhood I I used to live in Manhattan for many years and I've moved to Jackson Heights Queens and it's a very multicultural neighborhood with all sorts of amazing food and we have a very good farmers market there and I started to see how um people there were shopping for things um particularly things from Latin America so I I picked up a lot of knowledge from from those plants and and I think some of my plants um might be some of the first times they're they're in English language books in in any way. Uh, particularly w- one group of plants, papalo, and its relatives, um, which are kind of cilantro type flavored plants from Mexico. And I got those from a local farmer.
0: I never heard of of some of them. I never heard of cilantro, and I never heard of papalo, which you just mentioned.
1: Yeah, and cilantro is very interesting because the name you know it's such a weird name that it would be so close to cilantro, mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem to have a from what my what I could find, it doesn't seem to have a real reason to be so close to it. it just it confuses people. People <laughs> often think it's a misprint, and it's it's a completely other kind of plant. It's very much like an it is an aringium, and so when you when you grow it, it looks like a little weird little aringium, but the flavor has that cilantro-ish strong flavor, and it's very popular in um, parts of the West Indies and also popular in Panama. So. Um,
0: well, you're talking about food. And there's a lot of food in the book. There's recipes in the book and beautiful photographs of some of the things you made. And okay. there, you have a, a recipe for red hibiscus hibiscus ice cream, and even homemade absinthe. And I'm not a drinker, but I think I'm going to try that because <laughs> it's so interesting. It, it, it
1: was it's 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 good. It has a um I you know I, and actually I did one of those mistakes I learned from, which was so I grew the I had wormwood growing in my garden. I had uh, Artemisia absinthium. And I grew, you know, I, some of the herbs I grow in my garden just for historical interest, um, um, just because I love to have them around and their, their histories are so interesting. And I had wormwood for that reason. And then when I w- was working on the book, I thought, well, I'll try to make my own absinthe. And I came across a recipe from an old book of Louisiana cookery from the, I think, the 40s. And um, it had a recipe for absinthe where you distill it. But, of course, I'm not going to, you know, distill things. Um, <laughs> like a moonshiner or something Mm -hmm. in the woods so i i ended up just kind of taking that flavor combination that flavor profile of the different herbs and seeds and lemon peel and the different things and and just putting them in really high quality vodka and steeping them for a period of time and it was delicious and very much like real absinthe i made a mistake and left all those things in there because they looked so pretty and the and the absinthe became really bitter from the wormwood. It uh. just kept, I guess, making it more and more bitter. So my advice in the book was to do it for a certain period of time and then take them all out and strain it and then keep it. But, you know, wor- I think with absinthe, the real absinthe, the ones I've tried that are now back on the market and made by um, purveyors, they're very um, so strong. The proof is so high that, you you know, you wouldn't know if it's the wormwood causing some issues or just the high co- high-proof alcohol. And it's too much for me. So the vodka is just a little bit better. And but even that, it's, it's a little strong. So but the flavor is great and very herbal.
0: Well, you, you talked about steeping the herbs in the vodka. And I'm interested in all the different ways that herbs can, where the flavors and herbs we know about cooking and the essential oils. And there's, you have a whole section in your book on extraction. So we know what tea is. I guess tea is an infusion. What are the some of the other ways that people can get what's in herbs out of herbs?
1: Well, it depend. It's very much dependent on the herb, and I feel like I could have done a lot more with that in the book. And if I ever do anything else related to herbs, I probably would focus more on extractions. I have some friends who have a an herb, kind of a a botanical beauty business that they live in my neighborhood, and they spend a lot of their time extracting herbs, and and they're even more much more experts than I am. On this, And um, it just depends on the, the oil nature of the herb, like rosemary, you might express rosemary um, to get its oil out. Other herbs you might steam um, ways. There's, there's one simple way is you, you can put a bowl and a little bit of water in a pot and then put the herb in the boiling water and it will come up. And then invert a lid and it, the, the, uh, the vapor will come and distill back down into the bowl. And so there's different ways of getting the essence. It really is plant dependent, and often you know it's such a huge topic. The book is 380, is it 84, 86 pages? Mm-hmm. Is you know there's that's that's already a large book with a ton of info in it. But I could have gone so much bigger. So I kept <laughs> having to figure out ways to to send people in the right direction for different things. So for instance, for um, using herbs and that kind of um, either aromatherapy or for distillation I I sent them to places to learn more Um, and then the same with like Chinese herbs because Chinese herbs you know my reference books on Chinese herbs are bigger than the phone book so um, yeah it's just so much information it's all of human history tied up with plants in some ways that's what's fascinating about them
0: well it it is a reference book and I say that because every time I tried to read it from the front I ended up in the middle Because (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean you would
1: you would skip to something else, you would get distracted and be like, Oh let me think of that and you'd pop over to the other. You mention
0: a plant and then I go to the encyclopedic section to read about the plant and then something there turns sends me someplace else and I'd go back to page thirty where I used to be and and continue and then see something like patchouli. (laughs) And and then I have to read about patchouli. I, I I'm very much I hate perfumes and I hate things like room air fresheners but right. I love fragrance from plants. Mm-hmm. And I love what you wrote about patchou- patchouli cuz I hate it. <laughs> actually, I don't mind it on the plant. Uh right. but it, you wrote that it reminds you of a bad date in college, a bad roommate in college, and a bad trip in college and I right. I think that's... I didn't
1: say me. I didn't say me. I said one. One. Uh,
0: sorry. <laughs> I actually
1: I, I went to a very conservative college in Texas. there were very few the only trips were like you know uh, to to another town
0: <laughs> well, you know I could say it though <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and when well, and when I still encounter it sometimes, although much less frequently now, but even in the last decade, I think, what are they thinking' Because it's never a little bit, although maybe that's no, impossible to have a little bit it's, strong.
1: it's a it's an interesting one, and the one I thought was interesting about that was the history too, which is that you know it Came to mean luxury um, in Europe because they used to use the leaves of patchouli in India to pack up all the cashmere and all the different kind of shawls they were sending to England or different parts of Europe, and they used that because it keeps moths and um, insects away. And at the same time, when you open those things and and pulled out your expensive shawl, um, you would have the scent of patchouli on there, so it became an exotic scent of, uh, related to luxury. And that's why I think it might still appear in as a sub note in a lot of expensive perfume, um, but it's a funny little plant too. Did you, you have you ever grown it? Majority? I have grown
0: it. I yeah, have. Grown. It's a
1: finicky thing. I, I I don't think I've never had one last. You know, I tend to neglect it for a second, and it kind of right runs, yeah, goes away. But it's a you know, it's a very funny plant. And if you rub the leaves, there's a lot of that smell on the leaves.
0: You don't have, have to have rub them. The roots
1: before. <laughs> you don't have that,
0: to. You don't have to rub them. <laughs> you exactly. can just touch them. And, and,
1: and I. I, I It's such an earthy smell that I would have thought, like vetiver, that it was the roots that were causing the smell and not the leaves, and so when you grow it, you realize it's really the leaves more than the roots.
0: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned vetiver, because if I had to think of my favorite Fragrances I would put vetiver right at the top and then lemon verbena maybe and lavender Those are the fragrances that I never tire of and vetiver is really one of my absolute favorite fragrances
1: I love it. I love it. I've never grown it. I that was when I saw growing um, I I, And it's funny, you know, it's like I I guess I'm who knows maybe with the way my brain works but I remember every where I took every photograph Mm -hmm. in the book too and Part of it's because I spent so much time with the editing and the, of the photographs, as you know, when you're doing the books, you spend so much time going over and editing and culling. And, and so I, I, I know where all the plants are. And so the vetiver that I photographed for the book was at the Los, Los Angeles Arboretum. And it's, huh. you know, as tall as me. It's a huge, it's like a huge stand, almost like pompous grass without the seed heads. And um, it's a huge plant. So it'd be interesting to try it as a, as a house plant. Um,
0: I have grown it. I do palm. grow it. And do you grow
1: it? And how does it do? It's
0: just like lemongrass. You know, uh, w- yeah. I don't know if we've made it clear that it's the... I don't harvest it because you have to kind of kill the plant to harvest it because it's the, yeah, roots, it's the, ba- the roots that have yeah. the best fragrance. And I've grown it in small pots and then put it in the garden for the summer and it gets kind of big. And as you ima- as you might imagine, it gets kind of tired, but it, you can renew it. It's actually not that hard. It's not pretty, though,
1: in yeah, a pot. Yeah, it's like scragg scraggly looking, right? Right, right yeah
0: just like a clump uh, do, of dried tall grass,
1: yeah exactly and It's not not so pretty well, that's the thing with herbs. Some of them are not so pretty, some of them are kind of rangy or kind of scrappy looking, but then there's some that are so beautiful that i I do feel like that you can combine the kind of scrappier people uh scrappier you know mm-hmm. herb subjects with something more beautiful that has more substance in the garden and and um I th- sometimes visiting so many herbs herb gardens, I could see how. You know, sometimes they're successfully grown for visual effect and sometimes you go and it's just a plant museum and it's not the prettiest place, you know, that you would ever visit. Well, and I should Uh, mention
0: that you have a a lot of information on how to grow herbs. And you mentioned uh, in pots because a lot of them are tender and you want to attempt to keep them over. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. And you have information about growing them in the ground and some of them that you have to corral and some of them that uh, you just pray that they'll live. That's my experience, anyway.
1: <laughs> and some that will take over if you let them.
0: Well, I, you grow a lot of mint, don't you?
1: I do. But I have very heavy soil, and um, nothing really goes too crazy where I am. So mint, like, I would like my mint to take over more. So I don't, I, it's like, you know, this we keep trying to make the soil better, and we are. But so far, you know, we don't have trouble with rampant anything, even horseradish. It's all pretty well behaved um but so far that's not an
0: issue well horseradish is hard to get rid of but it it doesn't really run (laughs) too much and it doesn't see too much right well something that i really love about your book and something that i'm just crazy for is is the stories and the lore and the the things that are true and the things that aren't true and believed and that's just a that's what that's what happens. So I turn to read about a plant, and I learn a little bit about it, and then I and then you have these fantastic stories, and they're just fascinating and intriguing, and I I I love that, and I hate to put you on the spot, but can you? Should I throw a plant at you and see what comes up? <laughs> okay, let's see. Uh, how about Digitalis? That's a good one because of it's uh, therapeutic and yet p- potentially hazardous uh, qualities.
1: Yes, very much, and it's one of my favorites up at my weekend house up in uh, near the Delaware River because you know it's one of the things deer will never touch. It's so poisonous, and it's but it's so beautiful. So it's one of those incredibly beautiful plants, kind of like monkshood that is incredibly poisonous and um, I love it for its magical qualities. I kind of try to treat in the book. I I didn't really want to, some books kind of, you know, sniff at the magical history of some of the plants and, and I'm not trying to act like I'm a Wiccan or, you know, witchcraft oriented, but I'm interested in that history very much. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, I tried to treat, treat every human interaction with the plant equally. So if humans interact it with a plant for its food value or its flavor or its med- medicinal value or its magical properties or something chemical that they've studied, I kind of try to just report on all of them equally and not make value judgments. Um, sometimes it's hard, but I, I tried to do that. And so, digitalis is one where. Um, it often has had magical qualities. the The name um, comes from digitalis for fingers, um, mm-hmm. because and also the name, which you probably know from from knowing plants. But the the for your listeners, the um, word foxgloves. Um, some people think it, it has different thoughts, but the one I like the best is that that people used to associate the plant with fairies um, who were in those days, malevolent creatures, not the little fairies we think of now. And they, they were like gremlins almost, and they were tiny. And they sometimes, some people thought they lived in the digitalis, and or some people thought that they wore the digitalis um, flower blossoms as uh, glove caps. And they used to call fairies folks. And so folks gloves became at one point fox gloves. Mm-hmm. And so that's that magical part's very interesting to me. But the plant itself has a lot of, it has blood stains inside the the um, some people think it looks like blood stains inside the throat of the flower hmm. and that that's one of those things where you get this you know we can talk about that later but that's doctrine of signature situation that actually sometimes is real uh-huh. um, who knows if it's you know who knows why but there's this feeling of blood attached to digitalis and digitalis is famous as a heart medication because it stimulates the heart and uh, one, uh, a doctor in the 18th century, Dr. Withering, was using it and studying it for, for dropsy, which is what we call edema, when your heart's not pumping and your extremities are you know, gaining water. Um, he was trying to cure people, especially in the country, with extracts of digitalis. And having some success, but because it has what they call a, a narrow therapeutic dose when you're talking about herbal plants... Um, It means that the the dose between helping you and hurting you is very (laughs) (laughs) narrow. Um, And there's a lot of plants, you know, that's why it's hard to regulate um, some of them. And and so some people would, you know, die. So it's one of those things, you know, uh, like most medicine, even today with chemotherapy and other things, uh, the thing that you sometimes harms you on the way to a cure. Um, And a lot of the plants are that way. But digitalis is a fascinating one. It's still very valuable um, as is, um, you go. You, you must grow. colchicums in the fall, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, so
0: that,
1: for for gout, you know, and it's not anything anyone should try at home. But colchicine is a, a really used as as something for gout
0: um, treatment to help relieve symptoms of
1: gout as well. So, well, you have
0: you have the health uh, value of every herb listed if there is one, and to, along with all those other things that you talk about. And you did mention the Doctrine of Signatures. Uh, if you can put that in a sentence just to tell us what that is.
1: That, that I don't know how, I mean, it must go back, I think it goes back to the Greeks, but it was really popularized or kind of most, it's most associated with Tudor and medieval herbals where there was this idea that God had imbued, um, or had, had put signals on plants that would show um, harvesters or people who wanted to use them what the use is for. And so there's this idea that carrots are good for your eyes because if you slice a carrot, um, it looks like the iris of an mm. eye. Um, it's the shape of that. A walnut is good for your brain because it has those furrows like the mm-hmm. brain. Um, the, one of the most famous is lungwort because it, it it's supposed to help with lung ailments because it's shaped like a lung and it's spotted like a lung mm-hmm. or a diseased lung. So there's all these different things. But then when you study them, some of them, some of them seem to have no relationship to that. And then some of them seem to have little things that do relate it to, um, like lungwort is really good. It's, um, it's mucilage qualities are good for coating and helping with coughs. So there's there's those uh those relationships so who knows you know i don't know there's there's all sorts of people who um i think for a while it was out of favor and i've seen modern herbalists who who actually follow this and and subscribe to it now so it's not dead
0: well that's just one more thing that you have in your book the new american herbal without a subtitle i think that's very Exciting!
1: <laughs> I was thrilled. I kind of hate subtitles, and I was loving that they didn't make me do one. I didn't even ask, and they never asked me. So I just thought, okay, great. We're not. We're not having a subtitle.
0: <laughs> I think the subtitle is Stephen Orr, and we've been talking <laughs> with Stephen Orr, the author of this fantastic new book. Uh, I highly recommend, and it's just gorgeous, uh, the New American Herbal. And Stephen, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks so
1: much, Ken. I really appreciate it. And as you can tell, I can talk a lot about it. So I appreciate <laughs> having me on. Oh, you're welcome.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening and join me again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show, or as we like to call it, Gardening 2.0.